Hey, Rachel, why is North Star an amazing X-Men? I don't know, because he's a flying, super strong speedster? Perhaps for his delightful sass, adorable pointy ears, and powerful energy blasts? I mean, dude, there are so many reasons to have North Star on your team. Uh, no, 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 I, I know that, but I mean, wasn't he dead or evil? Oh yeah, both, actually. Simultaneously? Sequentially. Hydra nabbed his body and revived him. Why? Who knows? It's Hydra, dude. Anyway, after that, he got brainwashed a couple times, first into leading this weird mutant death cult, and then into joining up with the Children of the Vault. The Children of the Vault? Yeah, they're a little like the Neo, a non-mutant super-powered offshoot of Homo sapiens, except the Children of the Vault evolved in a time-accelerated hold of a ship. I also just get the impression that Northstar doesn't want to be a superhero. He's quit more times than Sunfire, to ski, to write books, to run his business. I know, right? Not to mention that one time he moved to the Norse realm of Alfheim for like three years. Wait, why did he do that? Well, Loki convinced him he was a half-elf. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 34th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. This time around, we're once again not doing some super well-known, its-own-trade-paperback kind of story. It's just going to be sort of a grab bag of different things, including the return of everybody's favorite evil demon sorceress witch, Selene. Also some crossovers with Marvel's Conan continuity, which is never not fun. And the return of Magus, well, I guess it's sort of a return, he's only been seen really briefly, who is the father of the techno-organic warlock, so lots of good stuff here. The really important thing about Magus, though, is that he also has an amazing techno-organic beard. I just want to put that out there early on so you can keep holding it in your minds for the majority of the episode in which we don't actually discuss him, just sort of as a carrot. I want a techno-organic beard. I just everyone a... wants a techno-organic beard. Yeah. Okay, well, if I keep growing mine out and then get infected with a techno-organic virus, I'll be good. Actually, it does affect dead organic matter, right? Not just living? Well, actually, we do see in this issue when Rogue absorbs uh, Magus briefly, uh, slight spoiler alert there, that her uh, curly forelock thing that she has in this era does indeed go all digital. Okay, so it's fair to assume that a beard would as well. I can only hope so. Assuming that it was actually your beard. A synthetic beard obviously would not. I would be a shameful, shameful person if I wore one of those. As someone who's naturally hirsute, you are speaking from a relative position of privilege on this issue, and you should really bear that in mind okay. before you make judgments. I, I will own my beard privilege. That's a very good point. Damn straight. So where are we coming from in continuity, Rachel? Right now, Kitty and Logan are off in Japan having the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. Rogue is being hunted by the government in conjunction with breaking into the helicarrier and uh, throwing silver dollars around like there is no tomorrow. That also led to Storm losing her powers. Seemingly permanently. Having a brief and extremely ill-fated romance with Forge and then quitting the team and an intersection with Rom Space Knight and the Dire Wraiths. So the current team is very much abridged. The main team is basically just Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Rogue. Uh, we also have Rachel Summers, the alternate timeline daughter of Scott and Jean. And she's sort of been bopping back and forth between the X-Men and the New Mutants, but she's not really technically a member of either team at this point. She's just sort of hanging out along the side, the way Ilyana was for a pretty long time. Yeah, and Rachel, you mentioned that Storm is kind of taking a leave of absence after losing her powers. And we have Cyclops off still being happily married for the moment until things go horribly, horribly wrong. Enjoy it while it lasts. And I think this is the smallest the team officially has ever been at this point. But first, some Hellfire Club bullshit. We have an interesting combination of characters that opens the first issue in this sort of mini arc, which is number 189 of Uncanny X-Men. And we should point out that what we're looking at this episode is basically an arc and a one-shot. So 189 to 191 all kind of go together. 190, 191 are this sort of weird Hyborian alternate reality. And then 192 is another thing altogether. So when we're talking about the arc, we're talking about 189 through 191. Right, and uh, it starts out with some characters we haven't really seen before together too much, who are Rachel Summers and Amara Aquila. What's significant about these two, and the reason they're running around New York together, is that they're both effectively displaced in time. Amara grew up in Nova Roma, which is a very, very isolated Roman colony in South America in the Amazon rainforest. Rachel Summers is a refugee from Earth 811. That's the days of future past future. She grew up in a horrible, horrible post-apocalyptic dystopia and just recently came back in time to discover that the events that would normally have led up to her birth have been precluded by the death of Jean Grey. So she's having a kind of rough adjustment period. Now, one thing that really jumped out at me in this issue at the very beginning, Rachel's looking around and seeing that, hey, you know, this present day timeline that I'm in, which is my past, everything's doing a whole lot better. For instance, the World Trade Centers are still standing. Yeah, something that's always jarring to come back to 
is that for a long time, the idea of the World Trade Centers being down is like the big thing that sets off alternate timelines. This is the evil dark future. And we're pretty much accustomed to the fact that there are not twin towers in New York at this point. Going back and reading it and having her be shocked that they're still up is sort of one of those jarring, oh, that's not what they're talking about. Right. I wouldn't call X-Men or really Marvel in general. Their stories aren't particularly timeless just because, you know, they're set in the real world and therefore, you know, whatever references they make, especially to futuristic stuff, is going to seem weird when you read it years later. Well, and Days of Future Past is a relatively near future. The dark post-apocalyptic future of Days of Future Past is 2013. So anyway, Rachel is, uh, Rachel Summers, that is, is... Yeah, we're going to have to be careful about that. Like, it's gotten to the point where we get questions for the podcast where people just use first names, and some of them are obvious, but with some of them, it kind of takes a minute. So listeners, if you're doing that, maybe specify whether you mean, like, Summers or Edidin and Stokes or Morales. It's less of an issue for me, because Miles Morales is only, uh, looks like briefly an X-Men, although we'll see what happens with the new Secret Wars. That's going to shake everything up. So Rachel's looking around this strange present that she's still getting used to, at the same time that Amara, uh, Magma from the New Mutants, of course, is looking around at, to her, what is very futuristic. And Rachel remembers kind of the way things were for her in Days of Future Past. Now, we haven't, at this point, seen much of Days of Future Past, really just the small bit of it where the future X-Men are attempting to do a last-ditch attack to get Kate Pride's consciousness back in time in the original 141 and 142 storyline. We know that Rachel Summers grew up basically in mutant concentration camps and that she was brainwashed into and forced to hunt mutants. We haven't seen a lot of the details of that. We're going to see a bit of that in this sequence, which I think brings us to a detail that's significant and that stays with her for a very, very long time, which is that her mental image of herself is as a hound, this futuristic brainwashed mutant hunter. And hounds are essentially what you described. They have this very distinctive look, this black bodysuit, which occasionally is drawn with spikes on it. If you're familiar with her from Excalibur, this is very, very, very close to her red costume from Excalibur. It's basically a hound outfit. And what we also see are these very prominent stripes coming in from the outside of her face to the inside, which kind of brand her and mark her as a hound. Which are referred to in the copy as her Maori mask, which to me indicates that one of the many dark and terrible aspects of the future of Earth 811, along with you know genocide and mass destruction, is massive cultural appropriation. So These things do happen sometimes. Yeah, we can write that off as another side effect of Sentinels just being raging rampant dicks. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rachel and Amara, they're hanging out there. They go to the Museum of Modern Art, and they're checking out the Roman exhibit there. It's like a reconstruction of this old Roman bathhouse. Amara, she feels a little comforted, but also a little weird, because it's like, hey, this looks like what I'm used to, but it's in a museum, and it's totally not. This is the fancy homeland version of the culture from which she grew up in an offshoot colony. The way I would have taken this, I were writing it, would have been entertaining errors, basically taking the Diana Warrior Princess route here. But instead, what they do is Rachel talks to Amara about, you know, what happened historically as far as Caesar and the future people that call themselves Caesar and stuff like that. It's a kind of very strange friendship bonding that you could really only see when you have two people who are time lost in modern day New York City. Yeah, I assume that they're like the special, you know, culture shock class where they have all these extracurricular activities. They're basically, let's do modern society. Oh, man, except like um, it's all it's all 80s stuff. So it's all just, you know, Paula Abdul and the other important things. It's all just going warmers. to the worst disco ever from the Phoenix Saga. Oh, yeah. The evil disco. I yeah, love that the place. Evil disco. They are then distracted by a dark figure mutually from their pasts, although at different times, because they've got a supervillain in common. And that is Celine. Celine just won't go away. She keeps showing up in this era of Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants. And man, Celine is the most ridiculous, boring villain. She is a psychic vampire cult leader. She looks like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She can control any inanimate object. She's an ancient sorceress. She's functionally immortal. She kind of wants to rule the world, but she kind of also just, you know, wants to slink around and um, drink people's souls. But yeah, she'll be around for a little bit, and she will in fact keep coming back time and again throughout X-Men continuity, so we might as well get used to her. What she's doing right now is she's heading to the Hellfire Club with her associate, this dude named Friedrich von Rome, who is essentially a mutant werewolf who is also the thrall of this immortal woman, Celine. Okay. He does have these really great mutton chops that to me just scream, I am a mutant werewolf. It's funny how you say mutant werewolf, like it's this novel thing and we haven't been talking about Wolfsbane for like a dozen episodes. Yeah, but he's way less cool. 
And way less charming. Oh, everyone's way less charming. Wolfsbane is adorable. Frederick is not adorable. Frederick is a throwaway character. Is he ever even in anything else? Uh, He's in New Mutants briefly. He dies pretty quickly. Good. (laughs) So basically what's going on is uh, Selena's saying, hey, I want to join the Hellfire Club. I want to be the new Black Queen. To kind of prove herself, she almost kills Sebastian Shaw. She squishes him with rock. Selena's the worst guest. She is so awful. She comes over and she just doesn't take off her muddy shoes and then she puts her feet up on the coffee table and then she drinks the soul of your acquaintances. No, she's like the person who's like, guys, check this out. I totally learned to juggle over the summer and takes all of your most breakable knickknacks and throws them in the air and drops them. (laughs) Damn it, Celine. Rachel, we're never inviting Celine over again. Oh, God, no. She's the worst. Celine is why we can't have nice things. She's why Sebastian Shaw can't have nice things, too. Although she's powerful enough that they decide to let her into the Hellfire Club anyway. Something that she almost ruins by then showing up with Amara and Rachel in maid outfits, which they've worn to sneak into the Hellfire Club after her, because that's how you sneak into the Hellfire Club. It's actually kind of cool the way she gets Rachel and Amara, because they're basically sneaking in to, as near as I can tell, assassinate her. And uh, yeah, she just traps them in their own minds. And so we see Rachel once again in the Dark Hound future. We see Amara in her own kind of dark construct. But then Rachel sneaks into Amara's mind, gets her to set off her powers, and almost burns in the Hellfire Club before they are then rescued by the X-Men, who have one of the funnier resolutions with the Hellfire Club ever. It's basically just like a, yes, we had nothing to do with this. Celine? No, we don't know her. We, we thought you knew her. How'd she get in here? <laughs> right. God, didn't she come with you guys? <laughs> Celine, so, party crasher. Yup. And uh, Magma actually wants to kill Celine because she killed Magma's mother. She killed a lot of her people. I can understand the anger there. Yeah, Celine, Celine was basically the secret priestess of a death cult and pretty much devoured the young women of Nova Roma. She threw them into lava on a regular basis to do a sort of lava-themed Elizabeth Bathory thing and killed anyone who found her out. She was exceptionally murdery. Selene's a super jerk. She kind of reminds me of uh, some of the stuff that Baron Karza did from Micronauts that we were talking about last episode. Selene and Baron Karza just like show up at your party and drink all your beer, murder your maidens. They're on the banned list. (laughs) Definitely. We won't accept checks from them either. So anyway, Xavier's like, no, Magma, we don't kill people. That's not cool. What we do see, though, is this guy named Jaime Rodriguez, who uh, we've actually seen before. He's a dock worker who found a big shiny necklace inside a fish. Inside a talking fish. Uh, well, the necklace was talking, presumably, unless it was one of those like Billy Bass things that sings the song on your wall. It could have been wall. both. They might have been speaking in unison. Oh, you geez. don't know. You can't be sure. The necklace definitely talks, though. And the necklace has been trying to get his colleagues to come steal it, trying to get someone to steal it and use it in ways that it's not being super specific about. Jaime is a sensible enough fellow to realize that no good ever came from listening to talking necklaces, so he's been leaving it in his locker. But in an attempt to keep it from further tempting his colleagues, he tries to take it home and gets mugged for it. He gets mugged and killed, and the guy who mugs him, just this random person with impressive hair, bursts into flame, and we hear the necklace saying, you know, ha ha ha, I am now free. And presumably it's something other than a necklace, because if a necklace is saying, ha ha ha, I'm free, that's not a very credible threat. Then things turn awesome. The next two issues, wow. I mean, it's kind of hard to know where to start with an age undreamed of. Well, that's a good place to start. And I mean, I think we should start where the issue does with a fairly straightforward briefing from Val Cooper, who informs the White House and Henry Peter Gyrick and whoever's on her secret government cabal. New York has regressed to a barbarian state translated into its equivalent historical analog. Okay, wait a minute. I see that illustration. We'll put this up in the as-mentioned post on our blog. I don't think architecture was ever like that. Especially in New York. And I think specifically what New York has actually regressed to is essentially the Hyborian Age. This is the rough heroic sword and sorcery era in which Conan is set which is very much not an actual historical period and very much colored by things like sorcery. And so what I'm getting here is that Val Cooper's sense of actual U.S. history is entirely from like reading Robert E. Howard. You could do worse. That's some pretty entertaining source She's material. like, someone, someone's like, what was the American Revolution fought over? She's like, Mighty Thews. Also Crom. Yes. Yes. We've talked about previous issues where it'll just dive into some shocking scene and we don't know what's going on as the readers, like, you know, Days of Future Past or the thing recently where Mystique's killing all the X-Men and it turns out they're, they're just robots. This story does that to a much greater degree. You know, the world has been this way in the eyes of all the people in it and everyone in Manhattan has, sees this as the way the past actually is. Which reminds me actually of a much, much, much later story taking that concept in a very, very different direction, Age of X. Sort of a mini continuity within, that's sort of a pocket continuity within the main one. I want to tell a story here. So 
We've mentioned before that when I first started reading X-Men, I got this giant long box from my dad. It had this big, long, contiguous run of, you know, Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants and X-Factor and all that stuff. And this was the first issue in the contiguous portion of the Uncanny X-Men run, and I was convinced it was like part five of, of this huge story. I was convinced I'd missed all this stuff. Nope, it just kind of happens. And that's the thing. There is a lot of other Marvel Universe in this, and I kept on expecting the story to be a crossover, and it wasn't, was it? It's just X-Men. No, I mean, it does follow up on a Marvel team-up story, and we'll, we'll get to that momentarily. But yeah, it, it just throws you right into this fully realized uh, story, and... I don't know, comics of the day, a lot of what they would do is they would have little footnotes about what issues to check out, or they would have a lot of as-you-know-bob stuff or explanations, and this Not one... Not this one! You're just thrown in the deep end. If a new reader picked up this issue, like, say, I did when I was a kid, lost as hell. So I want to take a second to talk about Marvel Conan and the Hyborian Age and what exactly that means. Because Marvel Conan is a little bit different from Robert E. Howard Conan or the Conan you'll be familiar with if you've read primarily the Dark Horse comics. Kulan Gath or Kulan Gath, G-A-T-H, who's the main villain of this, is a character from Marvel's Conan. Marvel's Conan ran for a really long time and while it involved some straight adaptation, Roy Thomas, who was the main writer on it for most of that time, plumbed a huge range of sword and sorcery, most notably Fritz Lieber's Lankmar books, along with a bunch of custom creations. Kulangath is one of those. He's persisted as a Red Sonja villain, and that's the context mm-hmm. in which he showed up in Marvel Team-Up. It's also a different Red Sonja. There's Sonja with a Y, and she's from Howard, and then there's Red Sonja with a J, who was created by Roy Thomas, and is actually based on another Robert E. Howard character, Dark Agnes. We could just change this to Rachel and Miles explain Conan. <laughs> if it's not evident, Rachel actually edited Conan for a while. I did not. So... I was the assistant editor on well, Conan for a while, editor. but I did I did a lot of continuity checking. Mm-hmm. Howard is terrific fun. He was writing at a time that all of those weird tales guys were in touch with each other. They were all borrowing and stealing ideas from each other. They were working in disorganized shared universes long before shared universes were really a thing. In a lot of ways, I feel like the Marvel Conan, while it deviates very, very far from the original, is kind of true to that spirit in some ways. And you see that most famously between Howard and Lovecraft, who corresponded for a really long time and were very close friends. And yeah, so Conan ran as a Marvel comic for a good long time. And for the most part, you know, even though they were both owned by Marvel and they were kind of in the same continuity, you didn't really see them intersect. And that changed in Marvel Team-Up number 79, where Spider-Man and a Red Sonja who Mary Jane Watson transformed into fought, okay. fought Kulan Gath. It was just a one-shot issue, and it ended up with a necklace that sort of was his soul getting thrown into the river. His being Kulan Gath's, not Spider-Man's. Right, yes, his necklace, Spider-Man's necklace is just fine. So, uh, yes, and apparently some random fish ate this necklace, as happens, and thus brought it to poor, poor Jaime. Um, Who's dead now and entirely out of the story, because what we are now in is Conanized New York. In the eyes of people in it, it's always been that way. They really are barbarian types with impressive armor and silly swords. And one of the things Val Cooper discusses in her briefing are the mechanics of this, that if you leave this certain radius, you revert back to your normal version, and you can sort of remember what happened. But if you go back in, you totally forget who you were before once again. And and the people in there are mostly sort of modified versions of their original selves. Some of them have kind of fully gone native, but a lot of them are, you know, retain some degree of their original personalities, which is always fun in Marvel alternate universe stories, like seeing what is so inherent to characters that they keep it even in different scenarios and personalities. And so we find a little bit of what's going on, which is that Kulan Gath, who now rules this new Manhattan, has cast this thing called the Master Spell. I mean, that's kind of a pretentious name for a spell, right? Jeez. All the heroes who were in New York are now transformed, all the heroes, all the villains, all the people, except for Spider-Man. Because basically Kulan Gath did this to be a dick to Spider-Man. He's really, really pissed off at Spider-Man for beating him, and he's decided that the best way to get revenge is to transform all of New York into a sword and sorcery fantasy, except for Spider-Man, who's just stuck in it as normal old Spider-Man. Ha! Take that, Spider-Man. Also, I put gum in your hair. Ha! Or, you know, the other way to read this is that Spider-Man is is the guy at the D&D table who insists that, well, you know, technically, because of a certain number of crossovers and Spelljammer, he can totally play his Rifts character. I'm just saying, there are ways to get a lightsaber in mainstream D&D and have it be fully within published modules. Oh, yeah, it's what, a Force Sword? I have a lightsaber in D&D. No, no, you have a sword that lights up. There's a big difference. Whatever, it's awesome. It's a sunblade. Yeah, well, anyway. One of the first things we see in this world is Storm waking up. She's actually woken up by Callisto, who is a member of Kulan Gath's guard. And then they totally do it. Well, they may between panels, but we don't see that happen on panel. Fine. 
And Callisto's like, all right, you need to uh, join up with Gath or else we're going to kill you. So we're going to put this like hot collar on you to brand you. Metal that they are going to weld together. It's not like, we're going to put this hot collar on you, man. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Storm and Callisto, so who knows? Well. But, uh, yeah, I really like this. I like that this is our, our entry to this fantasy world is a fight, a conflict that we've seen before as a very definitive scene within X-Men. And what we learn in terms of things that persist across worlds and characters is that Storm and Callisto are just both super awesome no matter what. Oh, yeah. I, I love every time they're on panel together, whether they're rivals or working together or what. It's always entertaining this time they fight on the rigging of a ship and no so, one gets stabbed through the heart this time though which is probably a plus yeah although they do get pretty cut up eh, but yeah uh, okay. storm, storm knocks them off the ship and she ends up inadvertently swimming through the barrier back into the real world and we'll get to more of what happens with that shortly meanwhile in the forgotten realms <laughs> <laughs> on the sword coast <laughs> professor xavier and caliban have merged into this kind of bizarre grub thing which kulan gath is using to find other mutants this is what's on the cover of the issue by the way and man it is memorable going back again to my first experience with this story so if you've been reading like a lot of x-men to this point you're like all right xavier's a telepath caliban's a mutant tracker i guess i kind of get it i don't know why they look like they're made of mummy wrappings but whatever well caliban's mutant tracking has been mentioned like twice so far and he's appeared in maybe three storylines fairly briefly if you're just diving into X-Men, for me, this was the biggest, what, what is this? Who are these people? What's going on? I kept on looking at it and expecting to see footnotes, and there just aren't any. You just kind of got to take it at face value. Gath uses Xavier and Caliban in their merged form to disable wizards who are anyone with arcane powers or a lot of mutants with psionic powers. Exactly what mutants are in this reality is kind of nebulous. Xavier, for instance, is a wizard, but most mutants are just superpowered. Ilyana has access to her magic, but not to her mutant power. It's just kind of a toss-up. The Morlocks are also working for Kulangath. They're his city guard. They stumble across Rachel Summers and Amara Aquila, who are on the run and who are rescued by, again, our good old best friend, party-crashing psychic vampire, Celine. Now, it's interesting. We do see a lot of the characters having similar personalities and dynamics in this fantasy world. And once again, we see Rachel and Amara teamed up just one issue later, hanging out together, even though they come from very different worlds and backgrounds. Well, they don't know that here. Right, but I mean, even in here, like, one's a, a warrior and one's a princess, like, they didn't grow up together or anything, you know? They've just ended up together during the immediate restness that is this entire story. Look, everyone is friends in D&D Hyboria. This is, they're in the tavern, and the GM's like, look, meet up however you need to, but, you know, we gotta get the party moving on because this module is not gonna run itself. I couldn't help but notice your party has no wizard. Yes, first gamer's reference of the episode. First of potentially many, we'll see how it goes. So Celine saves them from the Morlocks, although Gath has been increasing his recruits, he's already gotten the new mutants except for Warlock. Yeah, Warlock is not affected by the brain whammy that is convincing everyone else that they've lived here forever. He's just kind of good-naturedly baffled by the whole thing and is trying to figure out a way to wake up his friends. Meanwhile, outside of the bubble, Storm and Callisto bond hardcore over the fact that they're both really, really pissed off about what's going on inside. And Callisto threatens to kill whoever knocked out Storm's powers because Callisto is a lot of things and complicated and she will totally stab Storm for leadership of the Morlocks, but she also very much believes in looking after her own. And man, there's like, I love Callisto so much. She is such a good character. I also really like that one of the things that Callisto is upset about is that because Storm lost her powers, now if they fight again, it won't be the same kind of fight it otherwise would be. Which is weird because the whole thing with the first fight is it was supposed to be no powers. Well, well, unless you go with the fact that Callisto's powers are basically being very strong and fast. And awesome. But yeah, their dynamic is this one of both friendship and rivalry and hatred and a certain degree of affection. And it's it's fascinating. It's always fascinating. Yeah, Callisto's basically Xeno Warrior Princess. They're actually contacted by Selene, who's like, I'm stuck in an age undreamed of. And things aren't cool because Kulan Gath is a big jerk. So if you want to uh, head on back, I'll basically make it so you at least know that he needs to be taken out. But the deal is you'll forget what's going on out here and you'll be working with me. And they're like, well, shit, that sounds terrible, but the alternative sounds worse, so... Okay, let's do this thing. Meanwhile, back in the bubble, the tavern meetup goes terribly. The New Mutants capture Spider-Man, but coincidentally drinking in that same tavern are a bunch of Avengers. Yeah, and uh, some X-Men, and all the characters are, you know, fantasy-ized in some regard, and for some of them oh, there are bigger so changes are. than others. Yeah, the Vision basically just looks like the Vision. But then you have, like, Captain America, who's a total warrior hunk. He's blonde Conan. 
He's hugely pecky and bicepy, and he's wearing this. Miles, this is the Hyborian age. You should be describing these as mighty thews. His thews are so mighty, it's ridiculous. And like somebody mentions at one point that, you know, clearly your shield marks you as a captain, and he talks about how he's from the barbarian tribe of America. Okay, whoever's role-playing the character of Barbarian Captain America in Kulan Gath's weird D&D game, like, we're just gonna go with it. Write it down in your this character This is, again, sheet. this is the guy in your gaming group who really wants to play a character who's really setting inappropriate, and so just tries to make them with the appropriate system trappings, but it totally doesn't work. But, you know... As a huge Captain America apologist, and I'm glad I have to apologize for him less now that he's he's a movie star, I, I love this. I love seeing one of my favorite non-X-Men characters as this ridiculous barbarian with a ridiculous blonde mullet. That is not a mullet, Miles. That is a bob. Come on. That's the Conan cut. That is a bob. It's also the He-Man cut, I should point it out. It is, and it's a bob on He-Man as well. Well, okay. I shall bow to your superior bob knowledge. Bob Knowledge is my next role-playing character, by the way. (laughs) Does he have a mullet? But yeah, this is one of those cross-universe things that I love. One of my not particularly guilty pleasures of alternate continuities is that Captain America is almost always awesome. He's kind of a jerk in the Ultimate Universe. But aside from that, he's going to be the character that you really look up to. I don't count the Ultimate Universe. Well, okay, that's reasonable. Yeah, Largely we... because Captain America is a jerk. And, and I feel like <laughs> if Captain America is a jerk in your universe, you're kind of doing Captain America wrong. Because Captain America... Can I go on a while of Captain America tangent? Do it. I am a cranky, hyper-leftist. For a long time before I really read comics, I assumed Captain America was boring and a government peon and existed as a token of imperialism. He does not. Captain America, or at least the Captain America that I read when I started reading comics and sort of discovered, to me, represents an idealist version of America. Not what it is, but what it theoretically should be. And the ability and persistence to fight for that in the face of and often against the reality of what it currently is. Captain America works for the government canonically most of the time. But I feel like as a character, he's most powerful and most effective, as he is in this story, when he's fighting against the establishment for a higher ideal, which he does pretty consistently. He is a dude whose basic philosophy kind of makes me feel pretty good about a certain kind of patriotic idealism that normally really freaks me out. Absolutely, and I think that's actually an area where the Marvel Cinematic Universe has really excelled. I mean, you see that patriotic feel in the first Captain America movie, like I was feeling very, very American at that point, which is not so common. And in the second one, yeah, you see him fighting the establishment in a way that really works because of his idealism. I love it. But he is not the only changed person in this bar. We also have some other Avengers, and we have some X-Men. Nightcrawler and Rogue are here. Nightcrawler's like super swashbuckly, which, yes, good. Rogue is inexplicably made of green crystal. Okay. Later on, she absorbs someone, and he becomes crystal, and she becomes normal human. Rogue is just kind of baffling here. Mm-hmm. We really need some footnotes, editors. Come on. More. More footnotes. I never thought I'd say that. I don't know. I kind of like just taking this at face value and running with it. There's not a lot to explain because there's not a lot that's explicable. You know what it could be is that the DM just rolled on the, the random character trait generation table kind of on the fly when he was describing the inhabitants of the tavern, and he's like, made a green crystal? Okay, made a green crystal. Roll the yeah, 43. Yeah, I had these really good intentions to go through the monster manuals before we recorded this, but I totally didn't have time. So, yeah, yeah, there's this big bar fight, and Celine basically psychically KOs all the bad guys, all the Morlocks and stuff, and is like, hey, let's work together, let's take on Kulan Gath, and then Kulan Gath's head appears and eats her. Yep. Chomp. Gone. Yep. Psychically, presumably. Maybe. And he then invites all the mutants, like, hey, you should join me, you know, these people would just as gladly stab you in the back because you're different, whereas me, I'll give you wealth and power. But we've seen no evidence that these people would just as soon stab them in the back whatsoever. Like, everyone's just been like, well, that's a really big bar fight. Maybe we should steer clear of it. Yeah, so the mutant metaphor, I mean, I do appreciate that Claremont's trying to work it in. In this era of X-Men, he's actually very good about having that be ever-present. It really doesn't work in a world that's run by an evil sorcerer. So yes, all the rebels, who at this point are, you know, some of the Avengers, some of the X-Men, because the new mutants have already been turned, and a lot of the characters just aren't present at this point— They run to the Morlock tunnels to hide and prepare and plan their next move. The reason they run there specifically is that Kulangath's spells don't penetrate to the tunnels. He can't find them because I assume his magic is Wi-Fi based or perhaps AM radio. That would be my assumption. So they're kind of figuring out what to do and talking about, you know, hey, do we trust this mutant demon sorceress? And Ilyana's like, hey, I mean, I'm a demon mutant sorceress also. So come on, guys. Here's where Captain America once again is awesome. I'll, I'll just read this. Among my people, youngster, for whom I am named, a person is judged by deeds. Everyone is created equal, free in body and spirit, with the same right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Which I gotta say, right now in America, kind of drives home the extent to which Captain America represents the ideal rather than the reality. But that said, he does continue. My entire life has been a crusade against evil, against those who would enslave their fellow man. There's no doubt in my mind Aurora is right. Some of us are mutants, others aren't, but that isn't important. If who we are as people, if what we believe in is to mean anything, we have to make this stand. My friends, in the name of those Kulangath has slain and may yet slay, and the dreams he's trampled into nightmares, let the word go forth! Avengers, assemble! And it's really awesome. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, this part, like, got me genuinely excited when I was rereading it. Seeing the X-Men and the Avengers team up, you know, to fight against this common foe, and they're also barbarians for some reason, it's just kind of a fanboy's dream. I love it. It's good, and it's heartfelt, and that's the thing about this whole story arc, is that it's ridiculous, and it's baffling, but it's committed. Right, and I really love it. Now that I'm going into it realizing that, you know, I'm not supposed to understand everything that's going on, I can just enjoy, hey, it's X-Men and Avengers and D&D? Okay, yes, let's do this. I love it. Bring on the purple worms and basilisks. So speaking of baffling, Uncanny X-Men 191 starts with one of the most amazing pages of solid exposition that I have ever seen. Like, Claremont is just a wellspring of words, and he just vomits them upon this page for, like, a solid five minutes. It's it's wonderful. And you know it still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at this point, you know, Kulan Gath, he's, he's clearly winning. Like, the Rebels really haven't had a decisive victory at all yet. And so he's captured Spider-Man. And straight up crucified him. And again, it kind of amazes me that so much of this stuff flew under the CCA, because, I mean... He has literally and explicitly in the text crucified Spider-Man, like on a cross with nails. Yeah, and I mean, that actually does echo a famous Conan story, I, I guess. I'm not sure if they were um, going for that. Yeah, the story is red nails, but it definitely wasn't Spider-Man. That we know of. Maybe he was on the cross next door. He's off panel. Okay, Conan is all about graphic violence and sex and death. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man, generally not so much. We talked about this a little bit with regards to the Micronauts crossover, but there's some weird, you're not in Kansas anymore, tonal whiplash happening. And I mean, similarly, Kulan Gath has captured Selene, of course, by psychically eating her, and he uh, sort of makes her mouth go away. It's just this smooth expanse of flesh, which he's also done to Doctor Strange. And he, he turns her arms into tentacles and talks about how now she is a creature of wanton flesh who exists solely to give me pleasure. Which again is, oh my god, so, so Howard. What I find funny is that he, he does the tentacle thing to Doctor Strange too, specifically so that they can't make the arcane sigils they need to. I assume that Kulangath is unfamiliar with octopi because those things are hella dexterous. Oh man, are there just no octopi in the Hyborian Age? In the age undreamed of? I genuinely don't know, or maybe they're just really clumsy. Shit. In that world, they're like our octopi, but they just humorously fumble all the time. Like, if there is any species that is going to be all about arcane sigils and, like, world domination, octopi. Easily. So if we ever get just, like, one question for Chris Claremont, Chris, can octopi cast magic? Done. That's all I want to know. Well, no, I think squids are pretty dexterous, too, but I don't know for sure. Oh, the octopus-squid disambiguation? Yeah. That's my new indie band, the octopus-squid disambiguation. Does it write songs for cephalopods? For fish only, like in, like in Death Clock. I feel like cephalopods would be into, like, really cerebral math rock. So anyway... They're really smart. <laughs> they play practical jokes. They're going to kill us all someday. Listeners, we hope you appreciate our tangents because we're composed entirely of them. Make sure you're on the right side when the cephalopod revolution comes. <laughs> yup. So anyway, there's another fight as the rebels are trying to sneak in to take out Kulan Gath and rescue Selene because they figure, hey, we need a sorcerer too. And Ilyana is pretty awesome, but she's not powerful enough. And so they fight, and we actually uh, see a couple interesting things, one of which is that the Scarlet Witch actually imprisons Colossus in the Crimson Bands of Cytorak. What you may recall is that in the normal Marvel Universe, the Crimson Bands of Cytorak are what the Juggernaut wears to turn him into the Juggernaut. They're also a spell, because Cytorak is basically the Mordenkainen of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> well, I'd say the Chaturga, if we want to get that deep, but you know. Well, we're making D&D analogies, not Eternal Darkness analogies. Come on, man. Ah, good point, good point. Get with the program. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a big fight, and actually a lot of characters get killed, like Rogue and Cannonball get killed, Wolfsbane gets fatally injured, and Star Fox and Wasp actually get captured, and Evil Mirage uses her powers on them, and Rachel, you, sh you should talk about what happens here. Okay, so Star Fox is scared of becoming like Thanos. 
diagnosis of Miss Brother and Wasp is scared of becoming a real wasp, which Miles thought was hilarious and I think is actually an entirely reasonable concern because the whole reason, the whole source of Wasp's powers, you know this, right, is that Hank Pym experimented on her like, and merged her DNA with Wasp DNA because he didn't want to experiment on himself. So he talked his girlfriend into letting him do this. God damn it, Hank Pym. Hank Pym is just an unbelievable asshole. If you've heard the episode of Intuit that I'm on, Ella and I go into this in a fair degree of detail. And, and among the things I learned from her, there's a storyline where Jan Van Dyne's father dies. Oh. And she tells Hank, my father just died over the phone and Hank doesn't believe her. Why? I don't know. But then his aunts come and tell him that, yeah, no, it's true. Jan Van Dyne's father died and he believes them. God damn it, Hank. He's such an utter unambiguous shithead. He's so horrible. Oh, man, he's, like, getting on internet forums and, like, downplaying women's problems. He's, he's ant-splaining. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, is he actually friends with the ants, or does he just command them? He just makes the ants listen to him. You guys are my friends, right? You, you guys agree with me, right? Oh, man, guys, he, just, he just goes off on politics for, like, a half hour at a time at parties, and they're all just politely nodding and smiling. It's really uncomfortable, because he's got the helmet, right? And they know he doesn't really have anybody else, because he's alienated all of his other friends except the ants, so, you know, they don't want to just, just abandon him also because shit man then he'd be like sleeping on the street and then that would be terrible hank pym is like the universal horrible racist uncle of the insect world <laughs> that should be the new subtitle of the uh, ant-man movie i know he's not the main main character but even so ant-man the horrible racist uncle of the insect world coming soon to a theater near you but it's scott lang who's actually much less terrible yeah now i do want to point out here while we're again completely off topic that in the avengers earth's mightiest heroes cartoon which is really good and everyone should watch hank pym is actually a fascinating interesting character who while flawed is really sympathetic yeah it's not that he's not a dick in that it's that he's a dick in much more sympathetic and interesting ways janet van dyne is still a million times cooler than him and always always will be yes all of that very much aside cephalopods and racist ant-man very much aside rachel and miles explain the x-men because it's about time someone did perfect so warlock who as you uh may remember was unaffected by kulangath's spell and is also the best teenager of and, all the and teenagers is also the best teenager meets up with storm who's you know back inside the port the barrier now and reawakens her memories using these kind of images in his tendrils. You make that sound so tawdry. He creates little screens that show her pictures of herself in her previous life. It's not like charades. He's not... Yeah. <laughs> Although it'd be hilarious if it was. Oh, Warlock would be so... Well, he says shapeshifters are totally not allowed to play in charades cheating. Yeah, that'd be unfair. Yeah, it's like telepaths can't play um, Trail Pursuit. Or when Northstar got kicked out of skiing because he was Northstar. I mean, he could have been kicked out for just being kind of a dick, but... I suppose that's true. No, it was specifically because of his powers, because he couldn't prove that he'd won his medals without them, although he maintains to this day that he did. Yep. So anyway, Storm, who now remembers who she is and remembers the, quote, real world, you know, the, the outside the island world. And she's remembering this within the bubble, which is significant. But so Aurora goes to meet up with the heroes and use her knowledge of what needs to happen to hopefully right the great wrong that is the master spell. They basically ride off heroically to get themselves killed in Kulangath's palace, which they pretty much do. There's a lot of death. Like, we see Sunder and Vision and Colossus and Spider-Man all straight up dying. And that's in addition to Cannonball and Rogue. Aurora basically hang glides in using Warlock as wings, which is something we're going to see happen again and again, and it's really never not awesome. That's on the bucket list for me. I know it's never going to happen, but that's on the bucket list. Hang gliding in general or specifically hang gliding with Warlock? Because I really want to try hang gliding too. Well, I mean, I guess hang gliding would be fine, but it would be like a hundred times better with Warlock. Well, everything's a hundred times better with Warlock, presumably. And so there's this big kind of melee, this big fight, Aurora does manage, using her thiefy skills, to get the necklace off of Kulan Gath, which it's become clear is the source of his power. Unfortunately, Selene, as it turns out, has been with them all along, disguised as Amara. And she doesn't want to free New York. She wants to extend the master spell to cover the entire world. So suddenly she's the villain, as immediately shown by her cutting the warlock-storm hybrid in half. Selene clearly is a chaos gamer. Yeah, she totally is. She's like, yeah, I'm just fucking with you. I don't know. She's the character who insists that they're like lawful good and then passes the GM a note saying, I'm secretly chaotic evil and I'm going to kill the whole party at the first possible opportunity. Raceland did it better. That's because Raceland actually did it with effective narrative, which is what happens when you have the people writing the D&D novels playing a game of D&D. Yeah, what happens here? Warlock realizes he's dying. And so he tells Storm, hey, you're dying too, but I can give you the techno-organic virus by sacrificing myself, and that'll let you live and kill Selene. And that's exactly what happens. Storm goes techno-organic, she reaches out, absorbs Selene's energy, her life glow, and kills her. With the spell broken, the X-Men now have to adjust to this new status quo. Storm techno-organic, rogue dead, 
You know, many of the villains dead, several of the new mutants killed, others maimed horribly. And this is going to dominate the next hundred or so issues of X-Men. Nope, it turns out it's all going to be completely undone because Doctor Strange, who Gath has been keeping alive, is freed and says, all right, I got this. So Ilyana Rasputin, your powers are kind of time-based, right? And I have magic that can do kind of whatever. So let's use a temporal Temporal spatial claudication to go back in time and prevent this master spell from ever being cast. Okay, first of all, they're literally just going back in time to before it's cast. They don't actually actively prevent it from being cast. I assume that's what the claudication part is supposed to be, but neither of us knew what this meant, and I looked it up, and the only definition I could find was a medical definition, which is pain in extremities during exercise usually caused by poor circulation. And so I assume that the intended word there might have been cauterization? Do not question the mystical ways of Stephen Strange! I'm just using my Dr. Orpheus voice. He's a doctor. Dr. Orpheus is Dr. Strange. Mm Mm-hmm. But I assume that Dr. Strange, being as he is actually a medical doctor, would know the difference. But listeners, if you are aware of a different and more relevant definition of claudication, please let us know, because this is going to bug us. If only we could use to find out the all-seeing eye of Agamotto! I really like Dr. Strange, guys. Oh, man. While we were working on this episode, we mentioned Dr. Strange and someone else who's in the restaurant overheard us and came over to talk about the Engelhart Dr. Strange, which is fantastic. And he actually, it turns out, hosts a podcast about Bronze Age comics and Bronze Age superheroes. And I really love living in Portland. Me too. So anyway, this does, in fact, work. And the X-Men were like, well, are people going to remember this? And Dr. Strange says no. And they're like, oh, well, once again, we save the day and nobody remembers that we helped them out. And Captain America actually says, well, no, I mean, the Avengers are going to remember, and that's worth something. For at least another few months until the first Avengers versus X-Men miniseries starts up. But that being said, I mean, the Avengers, I think, since this time have had a, a respect for the X-Men, even when they're on different sides of a given conflict. Sometimes. It really, really depends on who's writing. But again, Captain America is a good dude. Anyway, one of the things that the time weirdness does, the Doctor Strange's spell does, is to randomly shunt this future robot guy. A future robot guy who will someday be a cold open on this podcast because, oh my god. Yeah, this is a sort of crystalline robot dude named Nimrod. We'll be seeing a lot more of Nimrod in the coming story arcs, but for right now, he actually saves Jaime Rodriguez from the mugger who stole the amulet. In the process, the amulet gets knocked into the mud and is lost. And he overhears a news report on Dazzler the movie, which is a movie in the Marvel Universe currently being filmed, on the controversy about mutants that's been brought up by it and says, well, society seems to not like mutants, therefore, based on my programming, I need to take out mutants. And this won't apply immediately, but it's going to be a big deal coming up. Speaking of robots, not from the future, but from space, X-Men 192, we are going to get a visit from one of the less delightful space robots of the Technarchy, and that is Magus. But first, the X-Men are going to completely fail at hide-and-seek. How does one completely fail at hide-and-seek, Rachel? As far as I can tell, they have no actual idea how to play. They say they're playing hide-and-seek, but they're basically just tackling each other a bunch. Colossus unearths an enormous plug of Earth that inexplicably has a handle in it. And Nightcrawler teleports around a bunch. This is not a version of hide-and-seek with which I had any previous familiarity. It's like Calvin Ball of hide-and-seek. Wow, yeah. They finish up, and Kurt, uh, he's wonder- they're wondering if Rogue has Carol Danvers' Miss Marvel's seventh sense since she absorbed Miss Marvel's powers. And this is sort of a basically a spidey sense. And yeah, so Nightcrawler's sort of teleporting around and tickling her to see if that can bring it out, and indeed it does, and she inadvertently knocks him into a giant stone cliff. And she's like, oh my god, are you okay? And he says, oh, I'm fine, you know, I, I, as compensation, I would gladly take a kiss. And she flies off crying, which is understandable, because the X-Men haven't really talked to Rogue much about what it's like to have her powers at this point. She had a brief conversation with Storm a little while ago, but that's about it. Spoiler, it sucks. Yeah, I mean, they realized where her mutant powers manifested, you know, Colossus and Nightcrawler are talking after she leaves. Her mutant powers manifested when she was so young, she might not have ever even kissed anyone. She might not have ever even had any meaningful physical contact that wasn't in a fight. Well, specifically, her mutant powers manifested, I think, the first time she kissed anyone. I can't remember whether this has been covered at this point, but Rogue's powers, as with her cinematic counterpart, they manifest as she's kissing her first boyfriend for the first time. After that, kissing is the weird, fucked up, aggressive way that she steals people's powers and memories and fights. It's got some really unfortunate connotations for her. While all this is going on, you know, drama with all three members of the X-Men who are currently around the team, Xavier and Ilyana and Storm and Rachel Summers are actually at the airport waiting for Wolverine and Kitty Pride to get back. Xavier is eavesdropping on the ambient thoughts in the airport. He's writing them all down in a notebook to use in a class that he's teaching at Columbia University. 
is it ever discussed what the topic of this class is? Eavesdropping on people in airports telepathically 101? I'd take that class. Yeah, me too. So yeah, Rachel is watching him write things down, and she's like, wait, do people really think that stuff about mutants? Oh, geez. And, and she remembers her time in the future right before she left. And again, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the anti-mutant sentiment that's around right now is coming out in context of Dazzler the movie, which stars, you know, Dazzler's a pop star and someone who's out as a mutant and specifically is about mutant issues. But you are ignoring what I think is the most important aspect of this airport scene, or at least the part that's most important to me. Oh yeah, what's that? And that is Ileana Rasputin's completely kick-ass Buckaroo Bonsai baseball cap. I always enjoy like pop culture references within this comic, and I'm sure maybe I'd enjoy them less if they were current, but you know, because it's, it's 80s and it's fun old 80s stuff. And yes, Buckaroo Bonsai across the 8th dimension, Ileana Rasputin, you are totally right to want to represent that glorious film. Well, again, Ileana is a new mutant now, which means that she can make relevant contemporary pop culture references. Ah, that's, yes. that's that's one of the perks of being part of that team. Good point. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Rachel's remembering her own future, especially in the context of Kitty returning, and remembering that after Days of Future Past, after the future portion of that story, it was basically just her and Kate Pride still alive, and Kate Pride, while they were infiltrating the Nimrod facility, remember that guy, Nimrod? Bum, bum, bum. Actually sent Rachel back in time to protect her, sent her physically back in time, not just psychically like happened in Days of Future Past. Anyway, Wolverine and Kitty get back and uh, re rejoin the team effectively. And Kitty actually mentions that she remembers Rachel, that while her psyche was swapped with her older self, Rachel protected her in the future. So, and this makes me happy because the friendship of Kitty and Rachel is one of my favorite friendships in all of the Marvel Universe. I really love them together. I can't wait until we get to Excalibur and get to talk more about that. It's so good. Kitty gets the best friendships. And a lot gets talked about in context of that in queer subtext, but she also just gets the best friendships. Like, so mm -hmm. rad. Meanwhile, there's all this character stuff going on, but it's been a long time since we had a fight. So let's have a fight. So there is a large impact of something falling from space, as things do. You'll remember that the most recent thing to land on the Xavier grounds from space was Warlock. He comes from a world where babies are created in test tubes and their rite of passage is to attempt to hunt and kill their parents. That's how they prove they're worthy of survival. Warlock decided that he would have none of this and fled, which is not an acceptable option. And so his father, Magus, came after him. And that's why he's there now. He's tracked him here and he's decided he's going to go through whatever allies his son has amassed and kill him or be killed, as is the proper way of their people. The short version of what happens is that obviously the X-Men are triumphant in this. Uh, Rogue briefly absorbs him, which is briefly really charming because she gets a lot of Warlock's speech patterns. Because again, the way Warlock interacts with language is very much filtered through a human consciousness through Doug. So Magus has an amazing techno-organic beard. We've already discussed mm -hmm. this. We will mention it again because it is resplendent. And Magus, it's worth noting, also really admires the fact that his son has teamed up with really powerful allies. It's interesting because he's trying to kill Warlock, but he also seems really optimistic at the idea that Warlock is actually getting his shit together and will try to kill him properly. You know, my kid's finally moving out of the basement. He's gonna go to school. I might not approve of the job he's gotten, but by God, he's got a job. <laughs> exactly. The fight basically ends, Magus runs away, and Nightcrawler is expressing a lot of dismay at, you know, I don't know if I'm a very good leader, and I hadn't actually realized until this issue that with Cyclops gone, with Storm gone, with Xavier taking a step back as he's teaching more people, Nightcrawler is the current leader of the X-Men. Yeah, imagine Cyclops watching all of this unfolding on TV from Alaska and thinking, God, I am so glad I quit that team. <laughs> right. And Nightcrawler hasn't sought out a leadership role, and it's not one that he's made himself known as a candidate for. Like, Storm was the obvious heir to Cyclops as leader of the X-Men, and she was really basically co-running the team with him anyway. Nightcrawler has never really stepped easily into that, and he's sort of gained the position by seniority. While he and Colossus have been around for the same length of time, Colossus is, again, super young, and he's managed to really badly alienate at least one other member of the team. So Nightcrawler is really the only option. Mm -hmm. Nightcrawler says to Wolverine, this job should be yours, my friend. Wolverine says, no way. Being boss ain't my style. Well, that'll change in a, a number of years. Sigh. Man, I like that version of Wolverine so much better. Meanwhile, a cop confronts the X-Men saying, hey, what was the disturbance? And they, they just telepath. Just kind of randomly. You'd think that the cops would just not come to the Xavier grounds anymore. Well, they're actually slightly off the grounds at this point. Right. They're at a random broken down haunted mansion. I forgot that. Like you do. They telepath him away. He goes to get in his car and turns out his car is really mad which then stands up, presumably crushing him, which really reminds me of 
that awesome repeated gag from the Perry Bible Fellowship webcomic, where all the Transformers keep going into different forms and squishing the people who are driving them? Yeah, that if they're in karma and they turn into robots, they're just immediately killed. Which doesn't make a lot of sense, because with the Transformers, at least passenger areas of the cars usually stay pretty intact when they transform, don't they? You're ruining the joke. Don't rain on my violent parade. If I can't pick apart minutiae on a podcast dedicated to explaining the X-Men, where can I pick apart minutiae, Miles? Where? Valid point. Anyway, uh, that's basically what wraps that story up. We do have a brief aside at the end, a few months later, of Xavier leaving his class uh, in the holiday season and getting beaten to death by anti-mutant racists. And when we say beaten to death, we mean literally to death. It will eventually be revealed that he was dead and the Morlocks found him, revived him, and dressed him in bondage gear and sent him home, as is the Morlock way. So I guess- but yeah, the, the last image of this issue is a puddle of blood and a Christmas card from Xavier's students. So on that gloriously optimistic image, I believe we have some questions. An anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, Are there any comics where Nightcrawler struggles with his religion not lining up with his personal beliefs? I'm asking because I know someone who insists Kurt must be a homophobe because a devout Catholic wouldn't disagree with the church's teachings. I'm not Catholic, but I went to a Catholic school for eight years, and I know she's wrong. Also, Kurt is one of my favorite characters. I'm queer, and she keeps telling me that it's unethical to like him. Are there any comics that will shut her up? Okay, we can't guarantee that there are comics that will shut your friend up, but you are in fact right. Your friend's working from some really broad assumptions about the range of dogmatic literalism among even devout Catholics. What we can speak to specifically is that there is textual evidence from the X-Men that backs up your side of the argument. Kurt's complex relationship to his faith has been discussed pretty extensively, but I know that it is definitely addressed explicitly in Amazing X-Men number 13, which came out November 2014. If you look up that episode, you will find what you are after. Andy B. asks via email, It seems oddly serendipitous that there'd be a mutant alien named Warlock whose father is named Magus in the same universe with a character named Adam Warlock whose evil twin is named Magus. Is there a connection between these two pairs of characters? So, sort of, yeah. Warlock and Magus of the X-Men, they're actually named after the Jim Starlin characters of Adam Warlock and his dark side Magus. It's really more of an homage than anything else, but it is confirmed to be a direct homage and a direct reference. So as far as we know, there's no direct relationship between the characters, although they do occasionally occur in the same stories, like in Annihilation Conquest. There's a story involving Nova and the Phalanx where they do, and that does make things kind of confusing, because there's Warlock and Adam Warlock, and I don't know. So yes, again, to answer your question, the names are absolutely related. That's confirmed. The characters, however, as far as we know, are not. All right. I think that wraps things up for this week, yeah? Yeah, let's take us out and do some thank yous. Okay, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. It is produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the producer of the Greek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our website, which is rachelandmiles.com. Also at rachelandmiles.com, you can find all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, essays, fan art, and much, much more. This podcast is completely listener-supported and is made possible by our awesome Patreon supporters. Guys, thank you so much. We couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. And we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge some of the folks who've been with us for a while. Some of those Patreon tiers come with on-air thanks in a wide variety of ridiculous voices, so... Andrew, I have been watching your progress for years, since you were a child, and I believe that you, among all others, are only worthy to join me, Apocalypse, in dominating the puny homo sapiens that dot this globe like so many locusts. Is Z.R. Perry's patronage of this podcast a blessing, or perhaps a curse? Only time will tell, but for now, the patron named Z.R. Perry lives in doubt. Next week, we'll be strapping on our roller skates and getting ready to hit the big screen. That's right, kids. It's time for Dazzler the Movie.